Hey, FFR listeners. Did you know that if you join our Patreon community, you can get nifty perks like early access, exclusive weekly bonus segments, access to our friendly Discord, and more? That's right. You can get cool stuff and help us keep doing FFR at the same time. What are you waiting for? Go to patreon.com slash femfree. There was something so interesting about like, when is it appropriation and when is it just like celebration and when is it like sharing of culture? How do you distinguish those? Welcome to Feminist Frequency Radio. This is the show that asks you to be critical of the media you love. I'm Anita Sarkeesian, and I'm joined by two women who understand that there ain't no party like a West Coast party because a West Coast party don't stop. Carolyn Pettit (laughs) and Ebony Adams. (laughs) Yes. I was going to make a joke about like maybe coronavirus stops the parties, but I'd say people are still having some parties, you know, like good, good social distancing. Yeah. A West Coast Zoom party. Yeah. You know, they're still the best. They're still the Mm -hmm. best. All right. This week, we're going to be talking about the new Netflix documentary, LA Originals, about the life, work and global reach of two iconic Chicano artists. Tattooist and designer, Mr. Cartoon, and photographer, Esteban Oriol. Hello, friends. Hey. Hello. I feel like the intro banter (laughs) during isolation is going to be a whole Mm. lot of the same every week. (laughs) Uh, It is. It's either going to be like 50 minutes of like deep, you know, uh, (laughs) here's what's going on, or it's like pass. Yeah, really. Yeah, no. what is it going to be today? Pass. Pass. It's totally a pass. It's too early for this shit. Mm-hmm. Um, I have started doing like sun salutations in the morning. <laughs> I'm into it. Which, yeah. you know, feels a little hippie cheesy, but it's just really nice to be like, my body can move, you know? Yeah, definitely. So. And it's definitely it's good to get that movement. It's easy to to not move much at all when we're in quarantine and and that's not you know it's not, it's not so good for us so well so here's yeah. my challenge for everyone is one day maybe tomorrow wake up do some stretches or before bed just one day it's not like you have to make it a thing just do it once with the, with the caveat that if you are not physically able like don't you know feel as if no, you don't need one course. more burden, right? Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. No, but yeah. like Thanks, that's, that's worth saying. Um, but also like before the, you know, comparatively recent like co-optation of yoga culture from upper middle class white women, like this is a thousand year old tradition, Anita. So you shouldn't feel as tippy dippy to do some sense. Uh, Girl, no. get out there and dig into that, you know? Yeah, but you know, I can't help but be like, okay. I mean, if you're wearing like, what is it? Lulu. Lululemon. <laughs> yeah, if you're wearing those leggings, then yeah, I got a problem. But otherwise, girl, I'm into it. Yeah, salute the sun. You think I change, Ebony? <laughs> no, but like, well, to be honest, though, this quarantine is doing things to people that perhaps they did not expect. You might be like, I have nothing to do but buy um, overpriced, shoddily made um, clothing online because what else is going on in my life? I don't know. Maybe. I uh, I kind of wanted to do a um, a fashion show for myself just to see what was still in my Ooh, closet. Yeah, you should. <laughs> I was like, you I, was should. like I do have clothes, right? That's not just like pajama pants, like new pajama and you have pants some, every day. <laughs> you have some cool clothes. I know. I was with you when you bought some. That's true. Uh, that's true. See, look, we got some shit. There you go. We got some shit. All right, let's get into this, y'all. Yeah. 
Originally scheduled to premiere at the 2020 South by Southwest Film Festival, but now available via Netflix, director Esteban Oriol LA Originals is a long overdue look at the partnership between Oriol and master graffiti artist turned high profile tattoo artist Mark Machado, aka Mr. Cartoon. The film weaves an intriguing, if rambling, story about the rise of these two Chicano artists through a Vegas buffet of hip-hop talking heads and stunning archival material. It's a compelling look at the particular intersection of Chicano street art, Los Angeles ethnic diversity, and commercial culture that offers a lot to unpack both through what it chooses to explore and what it leaves largely unsaid. The product of over 25 years of behind-the-scenes footage, L.A. Originals is a riveting picture of a particular slice of Chicano history, machismo, and culture that fascinates as often as it frustrates. That is a really good summary, Ebony. Thanks. <laughs> I feel like that's done. We're done. We don't even need to talk about it there anymore. There you go. Listen, <laughs> to be honest, the people need the three of us, uh, three non-Chicana, three like non-hip-hop heads to talk about this film. Nope. They maybe don't need it, but it is. <laughs> listen, it. I think it is a very, very interesting film. Um, I wouldn't say that it's good, but I don't know that that's a useful like category for me um, for a documentary like this because I found it so, so interesting. Um, you know. Well, so let's hold on. I want to talk yeah. about the like whether it's good or not for like. Mm-hmm. The, the, I wanted to talk about documentary structure for a minute before we get into excellent the meat of this because I think there's a lot. There's a lot happening here. It is enjoyable to watch. It's not like difficult to watch necessarily. Um, it's not necess- It's not really well done in terms of the level of prestige documentary that people are used to, right? Especially folks who don't watch documentary. And there is this sense a little bit of like, I really wish that he had partnered with a documentarian um, to make this because I think it could have been so much better. It could have been richer and more detailed, and it could have brought in a perspective, a little more of an outside perspective, because I think when you get to the end and you see a little bit of where they're at now, I it's so hard not to let that inform the creation of this, the reason it exists, the way it was made and all of that. And so I just I kind of wanted to be like, you have so much amazing footage and so many incredible stories, like let someone who knows this particular medium just kind of guide you through that process. See, I'm of two minds about that because I do think that um, there's a way in which like technically the, the film could have, excuse me, benefited from having, you know, a, um, an experienced documentarian do it, but I would want um, like a companion piece rather than a replacement piece for this, because I think there's something so important about the fact that like Esteban Oriol himself um, is the creator of this piece. Like it really informs the way that I understood it. Um, and I think um, like the, it, I mean, let's be honest. Like when we talk about like prestige documentary, what we're often talking about is a cadre of um, of films that are created that are from white filmmakers, you know, and some of the ones that are, you know, most famous or infamous are ones from white filmmakers, but looking at, you know, communities of which they are not a part. And I think there's something so crucial about the fact that like Esteban Ariel in creating this documentary as an insider sort of takes some things for granted, you know, um, well, and, and, and yeah. And that's an that I think is a really interesting distinction in terms of two particular ways of a, of going about documentary. Right. Like 
there is something about the fact that if you're making a documentary about yourself, you're not going to uncover some of the like more difficult aspects of that necessarily, right? You're not going to want to paint yourself in a light that isn't necessarily flattering, right? So like, yeah. you know, and, and so I say all that not in in being like, it should be this other thing, but that mm-hmm. it, it is a little bit, it gives you pause as a viewer in some ways, right? Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. And there are things that like um, the viewer, well, I shouldn't say like the singular viewer, but me as a viewer, I wanted more of. But as you say, we we weren't going to get them from this piece. So for like um, like Oriole's drug abuse and addiction issues, that's glossed over. Like it's mentioned, but it's dealt with in the space of like thirty seconds, right? Um, I mean, that's that's clearly a huge part of his story. But I don't think we're going to get the kind of I hate to say objective view, but I think in some instances, like having someone not internal to his circle kind of explore the ramifications of that would have been, you know, useful. I guess my my take on this and not and and not and not that anything I say about this film matters at all because it doesn't. <laughs> um, but I'm so on this I podcast think that goes and I'm supposed to us. talk about this film. And so <laughs> mm-hmm. and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna like lie about what I thought about it either. But like, mm-hmm. you know, I mean for me the film it glosses over everything because it's just trying to be this like narrative summary of their lives. And so it's like, Oh boy, now it's the Gulf war. That was a really crazy time. Whoop. We're on to the next thing. <laughs> and, and to me, like, I, I just, I, I mean, I recognize these are, these are such like historically significant, incredibly talented artists, but I do feel like a, a film that maybe focused on a particular aspect or found some angle or something could have been much more revealing about them and their work than this film, which tries to kind of tell the whole story in this, I think, very big picture, surface level, kind of at a distance way that I, you know, I, it didn't, it didn't feel very substantial to me. And I wanted more substance. I, you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, and that's uh, recognizing that like, again, like uh, they absolutely deserve to have, Films made about them celebrating their work and 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 how impactful it's been and everything. Um, you know, I I just I I did, I did wish personally I, I didn't find the structure very. Uh, you know, we're I, I felt like the subjects are, are are deserving of like a better, more interesting film. You know, and maybe that's weird to say given that one of them made the film. Uh, but no, I think you're I think you're absolutely right. What in an ideal world for me, this would have been like, you know, um, this, you know, two hour film that we got or 90 minute film that we got would have been broken apart and would have been part of a series like, you know, a four X episode documentary series that did allow for further depth into things like you could have done hours and hours on just cartoon. Right. And like the development of his style, um, from, you know, like, uh, graffiti art, you know, um, LA tech kind of art, um, like Pinta prison style art. It's like, you could have done hours and hours just on that. And the kind of, um, resonances of that within the community, because, you know, as these men are, you know, insistent upon, they come from a place and they have remained within that place and they have not divorced themselves from it, no matter how much their work gets commodified. Um, or you could have spent time talking about like just Oriole's work as a photographer of musicians, you know, and then the ways in which Hollywood sort of, you know, grabbed him up and suddenly he's doing, you know, magazine covers of artists. Like, yeah, there's, there's, 
this is in many ways to me like a sizzle reel, you know? Right. Yeah. I think that's a good way to think of, of it. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, please. Um, there's so much I wanted to talk about, but I think the thing that, well, two things that um, I was most intrigued by, <clears throat> excuse me, and would love to do further reading on is one, the kind of global transmission um, of this Chicano street style. And so we get just like this, you know, very quick kind of peek into that world near the end of the film. But like the, um, the, the dude from Berlin, who I think was, you know, uh, videoed somewhere in LA and was like, this is how I feel. This is how I look um, inside. And I think it's like, I was so interested because he was like, you know, I'm a trans man from Berlin, but this cholo culture is how I feel inside, right? But then also like the um the huge influence of this in Japan, you know? Like I was it's fascinating. Again, well, I wanted like yeah. time just on that. And then the other thing that I was so interested in is the ways in which, and this is a huge conversation, the it's because it's primarily men in this uh story, the kind of homosocial worlds that we are given here how it how these men understand themselves now that they are aging like i was fascinated by that so you have these men who were like at the top of their game in say like the 90s or early 2000s but for whom that kind of like you know cultural impact maybe has been you know diluted or diminished and so you have these dudes who are in their 40s 50s slightly older whatever but still like holding on to a version of themselves as like men in their prime like i just found that fascinating and i don't think it was necessarily something that uh oriole maybe even was totally conscious of at all times i don't know i uh going back to the first point i i, I like both of those concepts mm -hmm. to, to unpack, but, <laughs> okay but like the first one i think that's so interesting right there uh, to add to that the i think the other reference there was when kobe bryant talked about being in china yeah and that he wanted to work out but the the attendant at the um the employee at the Hotel was like, you can't show your tattoos. You need to wear a long sleeve shirt. But she recognized that it was cartoons work on right. his sleeves. And like that, that like you're talking about this cultural transmission. Like what is, you know, we, we've talked a lot about, um, we talked a lot about, um, Oh my God, the word just left Appropriation? My yes. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, we've talked a lot about cultural appropriation and what that means, but there's something, there was something so interesting about like, when is it appropriation and when is it just like celebration and when is it like sharing of culture and when right. is it, you know, like they're, they're like, what, how do you distinguish those? Right. And does it mm -hmm. happen because of who holds power and who doesn't? Does it happen in terms of just like niche community. I mean, Chicano culture is not niche at all, but mm -hmm. um, you know, like there, there's something that I, I felt a tension when we saw the video of the Japanese um, kids dressing up like their, you know, their interpretation of Chicano culture, because mm -hmm. I'm like, but we also do that to Japanese culture, like, or white, right. white right. folks mostly do. Right. Or um, yeah. So I don't know. There's, I just had a lot of tension there. Like, Again, like you're saying, every little piece of this film is its own, like, mm -hmm. could be its own documentary. Because that, I think, unpacking the, the the tensions of power and culture and appropriation and sharing is so interesting. 
Yeah. And especially like the, cause it's not just one way. Right. So, you know, I, I blanking on who it was, who the talking head was, who was talking about it, but um, they were saying like, okay, so you have um, these Chicano artists um, who are becoming huge, like, you know, underground forces. And as it becomes, you know, mainstream, it gets transmitted to Japan. It becomes part of this like significant Japanese youth culture. And then because it's so influential in Japan, it becomes more popular here in the US. Like that's mind blowing the calculus of, you know, how that shit happens. I have to say like the, the people that I was most kind of side eyeing in this film were not like, you know, that young uh, German dude or even like um, the Japanese kids. But it was people like Ryan Phillippe or Scott oh my Todd God. or whatever. Like oh I was straight God. up hollering, oh. you know. Ebony. Like, I just, I, I, it was hilarious to me because you're talking about Scott Kahn, for instance, right? Like, son of James Kahn. Like, this is a child of privilege. It's not just that he's a white dude. Like, this is a wealthy white dude with access to power. Ryan and, Felipe you know, said that his, like, he's now sisters and brothers with, like, Beyonce yeah. and shit. I'm just like, shut the fuck up, dude. <laughs> right. But, like, but again, this is a film, like, this is something that Esteban Oriol chose to include. And you don't get the sense that he's laughing at, or at least not in, you you know, um, uh, like a really intense way at, you know, these white stars who um, who are, I mean, I think as far as he's concerned, like, yeah, it's all part of the family of people who enjoy this work. The one person who I was like, why are you here? Was um, Brian Grazer. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I, I did not it's, understand what actually, the fuck he was doing there. I, I mean, I understand a, like his connection to the art world, but. I read a couple of interviews um or just like recaps of the film and some interviews with them. And Brian Grazer worked really closely with cartoon, I think on, mm-hmm. um, on some film projects. So that probably uh, is why. Okay. Um, did he, what did he do? Well, to- and is Brian Grazer the person or one of the people rather behind that, um, that art show oh, eight that mile. we see towards it's- the end? It probably happened because of Eight Mile. That's probably where they like yeah. got like started working together and shit. So yeah. Okay. Um, I also I just realized we have a pretty international audience that listens to this podcast. And in case you don't know what Chicano, <laughs> I mean, I'm jealous of that at this very moment in time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but in case you don't know what Chicano means, um, Chicano is a a self identified category, like kind of racial category of. Um, usually Americans, uh, American born, uh, people with, from Mexican descent, it's usually the, the parameters of that, um, as, which is distinct, Ebony, I was looking at your notes in here about the difference between Latino versus Hispanic. And so Chicano is probably the lesser known term for folks who aren't as, you know, up on self-identifying categories of race. And it's it's a cultural mm -hmm. movement, right? Like Chicano is a big cultural political movement to for this this group of people in this country that are often oppressed, often side-eyed, who don't feel like they have a home or a space because they're straddling these different cultures. And so um, it's, you know, I think that there's something really incredibly valuable about having a film that talks about this culture. Um, it's just very, it's a very specific perspective of that, <laughs> right? Like, right. No, it very is. And specific. I think that- that was one of the things that, you know, um, I, I did want us to point out is that there there is a difference between um, Latino, Latina, Latinx and Chicano. Like some um, folks 
who, you know, come from like Spanish speaking backgrounds, et cetera, when it, in, they are insistent upon, um, and rightly so, that there shouldn't be this kind of like flattening of identity along like language lines, which I have just done by saying like Spanish speaking peoples um, or, you know, geographical lines. Like there is a fundamental difference between someone who um, is, you know, American, but of Mexican descent versus someone whose family comes from Cuba or Puerto Rico or Belize or whatever. Right. And so I I feel as if I hear the term Chicano less now than I did in say like the 90s, but it is still very much um, a term with utility and in use. Um, so you can't just say like, you know, Hispanic. A lot of people don't use that term. You know, they they disavow the connections to to Spain and the colonization of, you know, um, that empire. So, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you pointed that out, Anita, because to me, it's something that like I've heard all my life. I know, but not everyone has. Yeah. Yeah, and now that you're saying it, I don't hear it as much as mm-hmm. I used to. Uh, as it, but and maybe it's just the, who I'm around and the things right. I'm reading, and maybe that's you know my own thing. But maybe it's just. But I remember it. I, yeah, uh, interesting that you point that out because I remember it being very present, and I, mm-hmm. I used to um, whatever. Uh, I think we need to talk about gender. <laughs> oh my goodness! Yeah, because <laughs> oh boy. Um, mm-hmm. I, w- I would like to point out that there is only one interview by a woman and it's Michelle Rodriguez and it's barely mm-hmm. like she's barely in it. Um, mm-hmm. But like gender, I uh, Carolyn actually just before I think Ebony and I had watched it just posted in our chat being like, okay, we're going to have a lot to talk mm-hmm. about. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I started watching it, it was like, oh yeah, we really do. Right. You like, know, it's funny when you, when you two um, had that back and forth, I hadn't, uh, watched it yet, like you said. But then as I started watching it, I was like, I wonder what the oh no was about. Cause there's a lot of things that you could be <laughs> like, okay, <laughs> yo, we need to unpack this right now. Yeah. Carol, what was the, what was the thing that like, did you post that after you watched well, it or while it, you were watching it? While I was watching it. I think the specific moment that I, that I shared that, I mean, it was an accumulation of things up to that point, but the specific moment I shared it was when, um, uh, 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 Esteban says about, you know, that he's, he's taking all these photos of women and he says, like, I always thought of it as uplifting women. Right. Yeah. Um, that was the specific was moment. Was that he- over this shot of the woman's ass that had been tattooed to say West <laughs> yeah, Coast? I, like I, West I, and Coast on either cheek? Because I was like, this this shot and this <laughs> this voiceover is like unintentional high art. <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. It's I- just, yeah. Sort of relating, like to to just frame, I think a little bit of this conversation we're about to go into. I in in reading some of the stuff I literally just read before we recorded, like there was one line where they talked about. So SA Studios gets shut down in two thousand and eight during the economic crash, and in that, um, in reference to that, in this interview, but not in the documentary, they say we didn't know what we didn't know the word gentrification. Right. Mm. They didn't know the language to talk about what was happening in downtown L.A. around that time and and, and before and after and increasingly because the their studio where they operated out of was um, right next to Skid Row or like right Mm. at the end of it. Um, And so I I see this as a group of of men from a particular time whose lives are politicized, but they don't necessarily have the like academic theory to understand the interwovenness of it. Like, yeah. not, that, not that they don't get what's happening in their lives, but like, 
There is a right. sense of like, you know, this shit sucks and we live oppression, but we don't necessarily know the language to talk about uh, to talk about it. Yeah, I mean, these things are very, very complicated. I mean, there's, um, you know, there's a moment near the beginning where I, I don't remember if it was cartoon or or Esteban, but um, talking about the just the whole kind of philosophy or ethos of their work and everything. And, and they say something like, you know, be who you are. A lot of people are terrified of being who they are. And they're talking about this. And there absolutely are certain values of authenticity and certain types of authenticity that come through in the work that they do. And those are values and types of authenticity that hegemonic white supremacist culture Mm -hmm. devalues and marginalizes. But, you know, there's also that perspective of, okay, but let's talk about all the ways that men, you know, can't necessarily be authentic or like express themselves fully in these spaces too, or the ways that women, you know, you talk about uplifting women, but also like there's women are put in very narrow boxes too. And it kind of comes back around to this in the end, there's a very, you know, a very brief moment that's very critical of Trump and, and, and all of that, but you know, xenophobia, et cetera, but never any bit of reflecting on, you know, misogyny or, or other issues yeah. And yeah, totally. And it's not like women, um, especially women of color, have been speaking up about sexism and violence and and all kinds of issues in hip hop culture and, in, you know, in different communities. But they weren't as main. Those conversations aren't as mainstream as they are now. And I suspect that in this particular space, in this moment, like there were no challenges to that. Like no one was coming in and telling this dude that gets like. $30,000 a tattoo to like, Hey, maybe don't do pinups of naked women, you know, but, <laughs> you know, well, like, but I, I think that there, there were challenges, but they were, you know, as you say, from, um, they were internal to the community. Um, I want to shout out real quick, the book, um, graffiti girls performing feminism in the hip hop diaspora by friend of the podcast, friend of feminist frequency, Dr. Jessica Pabon Colon. Um, you know, yeah. because this is one of those places where you're like, okay, we need a voice from mm-hmm. within the culture mm-hmm. actually talking about the ways in which there were multiple conversations going on. Like, yeah, absolutely. You know, at the same time that you have dudes, you know, lining up to get into SA studios to get like um, pinup girls on their arm, you do have Chicana women being like, yo, fuck this, you know, like this is not the role that I choose for myself, nor is it the kind of representation I want to see. But, you know, that's not what we're getting. Like, of course, that's not Esteban's position here. Like his position is Carol Nota was like, yo, look at, you know, these, um, we're showing the beauty of the female form. Um, but it's a very two dimensional kind of, you know, existence for women to the point where there are literally like no women elsewhere, like in their social circles, um, you know, around them except as like hanging on to dudes for like photo shoots right and even then we get very little of that like this is a profoundly profoundly singular gendered space that these men operate in you know and and even in reflection of making this film like yeah maybe like there's even this moment where you're like okay well you just didn't really have a lot of women around who weren't just there to be you know to be the butt of jokes or to be, you know, background decoration. Um, But, but he made a point of saying, I do, I photograph women in this way 
And I think it's uplifting because he knew he had to say something to do like, you know what I mean? Like there's a, maybe he didn't know he had to say something, but there is this sense of like, that was a choice that was made to even acknowledge the fact that like, you literally are not interviewing, talking about, including, engaging with women in this at all other than as sexual objects. And then you point that out and try to justify it by being like, but it's just the beauty of the female form. Blech. Right. Well, and I also think that like um, there it's it's really interesting, the versions of femininity that we we don't see as much but that are as resonant so for instance like the um the la hand signs right like that iconic image of the woman's fingers like that's a female gangster you know who made yeah. that sign and you know and i was like yo i want to know who that woman was i want to know more about her so like clearly these women exist who are not the prison fantasy pinups um that that otherwise like populate uh, and I, I realize I'm conflating like cartoons work and Esteban's work here in a way that I shouldn't. Um, but but there are other women there. Um, well, but, but yeah, like it, he, we don't we just don't see them as much. And like when you th they we both, see like they Michelle Rodriguez, they sorry, Ebony, they both yeah. sexualized women in their work. I think that that's yeah, you yeah. see that yeah, you know. But but again, like. There are, you know, women in hip hop, but you saw like very few, if any. I mean, in fact, I don't think we see any, do we? We saw like I, Beyonce, but she's right. not hip hop. Um, we see, you know, um, uh, Latina there's like a actors. Brief, there's but a mention, I, a mention of like Erica Badu at one point. I think maybe like it's just I think as a he name, toured, he as toured. a name drop at least, yeah. but like mm -hmm. not like not like she's not like featured in any way. Mm -hmm. Um. Yeah, I can't. Yeah, we certainly. Yeah, I just. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was just gonna. Like, I think it's it's very interesting. Um, how I think it was cartoon was saying like, yeah, there's the the style that I have developed. You know, is a conglomeration of things, and one of those things is this pinta style art. And so you have these men who are in prison engaging in these like overblown, exaggerated fantasies. Um, of access to a femininity that they do not have access to while they are in prison. And this is what they are. This is what they are reproducing. And so it's a nod to that. And I was like, I could read 15 doctoral dissertations on this right now, <laughs> like straight up. Like there's a lot to unpack here. So there's an interesting piece where they, they are talking about how like we are, we're, you know, Ebony, you said this earlier where we're still connected to our community, even though we are like with these big brands and making all this money at this particular point and, and engaging with celebrities. Um, and so they're like, you know, in, at least in the photography, there's still this engagement with, homelessness and mm -hmm. violence and drug use like there's there's a shot of of a former gang member talking about a moment and the moment was doc a moment of of doing yeah. drugs and the moment was documented and mm -hmm. so having him tell it years later and watching it act like actually watching it Yo, in real time right? i was like damn like that's some of that's some of the like holy crap there's so much um, documentation here from years mm -hmm. and years and years. That's really fascinating. But what I what stuck out to me when when they were actually calling out the fact that they're like acknowledging and recognizing the violence was there's a scene kind of early on where they joke about how Esteban went and beat up a bunch of bootleggers. Yeah, and it like 
there's no there's no challenge to that. There's no critique to that. It was just like, yeah, that was funny, man, that he did that thing, you know, like, fuck those bootleggers. And you're like, it, it was just so part of the machismo culture that comes out of what we're talking about with sexualizing women, with not including um, not including them in this cultural moment in any sort of relevant way or any sort of authentic um, way with agency at all. Uh, and And a part of the larger machismo, like, we have to act a certain way and we have to be tough and we have to, you know, all of these things that are, you know, really, I think a lot of us are trying to challenge in masculinity, right. And, and different mm -hmm. forms of masculinity. Yeah. It's so tough because again, when you're speaking about a community of which you are not a part, you want to be so careful um, not to be, you know, explicitly or implicitly, um, insensitive or just outright racist, right? Like it's hard to talk about um, the Chicano masculinity on display here because you feel like you want to tread so lightly. Um, and I can only speak from the experience of being a black woman and, you know, the ways that I wrestle with misogyny in my community, for instance, and, you know, talking about like the misogynoir that is, you know, a particular burden for black women, particularly as it inflicted is inflicted upon us by like cisgender black men. Um, but when someone from outside of my culture is like, yo, um, you know, there's a particular flavor of um, like black machismo, you know, like black misogyny. I'm like, OK, well, you know, slow your roll a little bit because I'm not <laughs> sure you have the you know, like the the full context to really appreciate how black men have, you know, some black men um, have constructed a version of masculinity that is a deliberate and insistent, you know, kind of um, reaction to the ways in which they are dehumanized by larger white culture. Um, so like that, this De is what, you know, it's definitely like worth more. It's definitely worth calling me out on that, Ebony. And I appreciate you. No, I'm not that, calling you. I'm calling out it, oh. it, this whole thing. Like it, when we talk about art or anything, you know, um, it's it, we just all have to be aware of that. Like, OK. Yeah. And and we use the word machismo specifically in talking mm -hmm. about some of this, because, like, I urge you to all go do your own reading of people from Latinx cultures and Chicano cultures talking about this particular kind of toxic masculinity. Um, and this is this word comes from. Right. De decades of, of folks doing activism around this kind of masculinity, the violence that connected to it and that sort of things from those communities. So that just putting that out there in relation to what you're talking about, Ebony. Yeah. Oh, I just I could have used so much more. I wanted so much more. So Anita, you live in L.A. now. Carol, you used to live in L.A. Did y'all or do you engage much with like public art? You know, have you had the opportunity to do that? Because um, we go pretty quickly from like the graffiti that Cartoon did to then like, you know, his tattoo work or his design work or whatever. But I wanted definitely to know more about like the murals. Like LA has got a huge mural culture that if you uh -huh. have the opportunity to check it out, like you really, really should because it is just absolutely phenomenal. Lar much of it, you know, the work of um, Chicano artists. Um uh, I kept thinking this reminds me because as I was watching this, I kept thinking of like, who are the people now 
Right. Mm-hmm. Like we we documentaries are made often about the folks who influenced a time period and a movement. And like, you know, we can look back and be like, oh, these are the connections right between mm-hmm. the, the disparate things that we knew about this space. Um, but then I'm always like, who's doing this shit now? Right. Like, who, mm-hmm. who are the you know, we would in influencer terms, gross, call them like tastemakers or whatever. But like, who's mm-hmm. the people who are the people making the badass Chicana art now or who who's doing like you know, mm-hmm. who's doing a new style of tattooing or whatever the other, the new thing is that, that folks are getting done, right. right? Like I'm, I'm that, pe- this piqued that curiosity for me in some ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for real, for real. Um, Ebony, do you have a fun fact you want to share with us? I do, I do. So before I worked for Feminist Frequency, um, I worked for another nonprofit and one of the fundraisers that we hosted every year was this event called Artworks for the Cure. It was a huge, huge undertaking. It was a, um, a modern art show that was largely framed around, well, I shouldn't say largely because the theme changed year on year, um, but there was usually a huge street art component and we were lucky enough to have artwork from um, Cartoon um several years running and the last year we hosted it we also got to have um some of his low riders on display so this was a show that was at barker hangar we completely transformed the space and so you know in these sort of like mini galleries we set up we had a couple of cartoons low riders um and so in the organizing of this show i got to go to sa studios Obviously, this was before it closed down. They lost their downtown location. And it was just as fucking amazing as you would expect. And as you see um, in this documentary. Yeah. And (laughs) like, cool. What a treat. It was, I was, I was fairly, I mean, I knew of Cartoon, but really didn't know a lot about his art, you know, and um, definitely didn't know very much about like lowrider culture. I've since learned more, but. It is these cars absolutely are works of art. I mean, you can see, um, you get a sense of like the the vibrant colors on the screen, but there's really nothing like seeing one of them up close. It really is like, they call it candy paint. It is just absolutely gorgeous. It was also a tremendous pain in my ass arranging to have these low riders <laughs> delivered to Barker Hanger. You have to have all of the gas, you know, drained out, you know, for uh, fire purposes, like the insurance on these things. We had to have 24 hour guards, whatever. It was amazing bringing the art to the people. But that's awesome. I yeah. it, um, reminds me of in the mission in San Francisco, there used to be a regular like low rider parade Mm -hmm. i don't know what they call them but just like the street would just get taken mission street would get taken over and it would just be like loads of lowriders and folks would come out on the streets and like Mm -hmm. it was like a fucking party it was awesome yeah and apparently i found out from um someone who had lived there for had a shop there for a really long time like this used to happen like every weekend once a Mm -hmm. month like it was such a regular occurrence and it just started getting more and more phased out and probably likely as um, gentrification occurred and the mission, um, you know, lost, a lost, I'm, I'm, that feels generous. Um, mm-hmm. a lot of its, um, you know, Latino Chicano roots, um, and got pushed out that that became, uh, in more infrequent, uh, which is a bummer. So, you know, it, it really is because you think about the kind of like urban, um, gatherings that, 
people engage in in these communities. So it's like people out on the street, and maybe I'm particularly sad about this right now because we can't be out on the street. Haha, <laughs> I don't leave my house at the best of times. But, you know, the the like communal experience of art and music and culture that these low rider processions represented um you know the way that that's been you know largely displaced from it it's a it's a loss it is it's a real loss yeah absolutely all right well on that note <laughs> yeah we'll be right back with our weekly freakouts hey friends carolyn here If you enjoy listening in on our conversations each week about what's happening in the world of media and pop culture and how that impacts our larger culture, please head on over to patreon.com slash femfreak and help us keep bringing FFR to you. Now it's time to talk about what's been thrilling us, moving us, upsetting us, or infuriating us this past week. Ebony, you want to get us started? Yeah. uh, So in the last episode, when we talked about how we're coping or not coping um, in this time of fucking global upheaval, uh, I mentioned that I'm having a hard time kind of watching new shows right now. I'm finding a lot of solace in reading, um, mostly short stories. Um, But I have discovered over the past week, um, maybe because we uh, decided we were going to watch this and I'd been thinking about it, but that I am able to watch um, documentaries right now, which is a genre that, to be honest, I had not really spent much time with. Um, before like maybe a year or two ago. Like I would occasionally watch one, but it just wasn't my jam. But I am really, really um, avidly looking for new stuff, new documentaries to check out, both like uh, feature ones and and also series. Um, so anyways, this past week, I watched the first episode of McMillions, which is this uh, documentary series on HBO. And it's all about <laughs> The fraud, (laughs) the long-term fraud around the McDonald's Monopoly game uh, that started in like, there's a line in the first episode where the, the, one of the FBI agents who helped find the culprit said there was no legitimate winner of any of the big prizes from 1989 to 2001. Oh my God. Yeah. (laughs) It is a an absolutely bonkers story. I don't want to spoil it for you. Um, and I will say this. I don't think the documentary is particularly great. You know, um, it's one of those documentaries that relies a lot on like recreations. And so occasionally the recreations can get a little cheesy. Um, but just the cast of characters, the hubris of, you know, the people who are involved, but also the fucking chucklehead who was kind of the main FBI guy, he's almost unwatchable. And because he's unwatchable, he's profoundly watchable. You just think like, this is law enforcement in this country. And the the self-identity that some of these dudes, because it is mostly dudes, construct around being the good guy you know, um, but also, you know, this flavor of like, I'm going to go my own way. I'm a rule breaker. You know, it's it's hilarious or would be hilarious if it wasn't so ultimately unsettling, you know, and I guess I feel able to watch this show because I feel relatively I feel untouched 
by the issue at play here. Like it's a McDonald's monopoly game. I never thought I was going to min- win that million dollars anyway. <laughs> so, you know, whatever. And you know, it's McDonald's money. So it, it wasn't as if like it was money that was, you know, promised to an orphanage that someone fraudulently um, took from them, you know? So I feel, it feels very relatively low stakes. And so I've just been enjoying watching this and just been like the amount of work it takes to be a con artist <laughs> like i'm too lazy for this like th- maybe this is why i have a regular schmegular job because it just seems like you have to the anxiety you know of constantly wondering if someone is like looking over your shoulder uh, whatever um so anyways mcmillions so it's i guess on we're not HBO. starting our own oceans eight Ebony's out. <laughs> um, can I be like the Elliot Gould character who's no. maybe not in the front line, but who sits around in like, you, you know, just, a really badass robe you just by talked. my pool? <laughs> <laughs> you just talked yourself out of it hardcore. Yeah, yeah that's okay. I'm, I'm telling you, I would not be good for a heist on any it, level. So It's actually funny because I also like, I like documentaries, but I just haven't been watching a lot in the last several years. And I started mm-hmm. in isolation watching documentaries as well. So yeah, I don't know what it is about. Like, maybe we just want to connect with real people in some weird way. I don't know. Yeah. But it's also like, you know, in the way that we talked about um, LA originals, right? Like documentary as a, as a form, as a medium for telling a story is so interesting. Um, and as long as you remain aware that there is a, there is a viewpoint, like there's no such thing as an objective telling of a story. Um, it, it's, it's really fascinating to watch how a narrative comes together and how a filmmaker or a team of filmmakers, you know, choose what to present and what to leave on the cutting room floor. So anyway, McBillions on HBO. Cool. Carolyn, what's up with you? So I have not been venturing out of my comfort zone much at all. Uh, so this is a bit of like a kind of repeat freak out, I think. But, um, you know, so uh, one thing I've been finding comfort in um, th- during uh, these uh Strange and difficult times um, are is uh, old episodes of Columbo, and Columbo's yeah. kind of interesting to. Th- oh, Columbo's so good, so good. Um, uh, but it's interesting to think about Columbo. So Columbo is set in in Los Angeles, right? But but Columbo's suspect or targets, like the people he has in his crosshairs, are almost always like very wealthy, privileged people. And so there is actually the sense in which Columbo is kind of wealth porn for me or whatever, because you see these, like the homes and these apartments of the, the like very wealthy people. And, and uh, you know, there is that, that aspect of it. I mean, and, and, you know, you could certainly argue that, that there's a negative to the fact that, that a show about an LA cop is focused on, because it presents a very, it's it's not an authentic portrayal of LA at all. Obviously, I mean, again, we just, we're just talking about LA originals and and uh, you know so, but but there is something uh, very interesting and very satisfying about um, the way that you always know that Columbo's going to get his person and and everything's going to click into place and it's going to be very satisfying. So I guess I w- I'll recommend one episode in particular uh, this week, which is an episode that is available on YouTube in its entirety. Um, and it's called, um, it's called try and catch me. And the fun thing about try and catch me is that the killer, and it's not a spoiler in Columbo to say who the killer is because you know, from the very beginning. Um, so the killer is played by Ruth Gordon, who was this, um, you know, like sort of just 
legendary career actor in, in Hollywood. And she just is having so much fun um, in this episode of Columbo. Like she just is just chewing through the dialogue and everything. And she just, you can just tell what a, what a wonderful time she's having. And that makes it really fun to watch. And um, you know, it's uh, yeah. Like she, she, it's super, you know, she has, she has, she has so much money character that she has this like amazing walk-in safe in her in her office in her home and she kills her nephew by having him walk into the into the safe and then she locks it behind him and he gets asphyxiated it but it's like the, the oh, most like oh, elegant Jesus. the most like <laughs> elegant wet hands-off way for this you know to sort of commit a murder and anyway um so yeah you know uh, comfort watching you know if you're looking yeah. for comfort watching right now um that's what's working for me nice. uh caro did you see on twitter just a couple of days ago mark ruffalo was in a conversation with natasha leone because they both were like god i would mm-hmm. love to play the role of columbo mm-hmm. <laughs> in a remake and then michael sheen popped in and was like yo but i've got the idea for a perfect columbo episode oh, etc nice. it was just like it was all just like Actors I love talking yeah. about a show that I love. And it, yeah, it was it was cool. Yeah, Mark Ruffalo would definitely be probably my pick to take mm-hmm. on the role today if if they were gonna if they were gonna make a Columbo movie. I could see mm-hmm. him in the role definitely. Yeah. Dreams. Dreams can come true. Yeah. <laughs> Spe- speaking of dreams, um, this my freak out I have had on deck for a long time, and I'm so excited to finally talk about it. Um, it's a book called In the Dream House by Carmen Maria Machado. And yo, dude, this mm-hmm. shit is incredible. So um, it is a memoir. It is set up in the she is clearly a poetic artistic writer. Um, and it is it is a story about her time living with um in a in an abusive relationship. And she is a lesbian and her abuser was a woman. And that is an important piece of the way she tells this story in um, how she's grappling with the fact that women can be abusive too. And that, you know, pulling through historical conversations about lesbian domestic violence and how that those conversations happen in particular areas, but they don't go really big. Um, the psychology and the ramifications of living with an abuser or or being in relationship with an abuser, how it happened, like how you like get stuck in that in this pattern. Um, and she kind of she goes back and forth in time. Um, she brings in pop culture references. She brings in other stories and experiences uh, with other people. It's just it's magnificent. And each section is is labeled Dreamhouse as, right? So it's Dreamhouse as fantasy, Dreamhouse as American Gothic, um, Dreamhouse as Bluebeard. And she is just, I feel like I'm really not doing it justice, but it is absolutely breathtaking and incredible. And I'm just delighted that I had the opportunity to read it, to be honest. So I can't, <laughs> I can't speak highly enough in the Dreamhouse by Carmen Maria Machado. M- Machado? Machado. I don't know how to say her last name. Uh, sorry. I'm a terrible human. 
Anyway, do you remember listening to that podcast episode yep, interview I do. with her? Um, so Anita and I took a road trip to Vegas because we make good decisions. Uh, this didn't happen recently. No, during the lockdown. <laughs> by the way, this is a, this is a poor decision we made before lockdown. But anyways, I was forcing Anita to listen to a different podcast, and we listened to an episode of Code Switch, which I will link to. There was an interview with Carmen, um, and we both were like, "Yo, we got to read this book asapually." So what happened then is I walked into my friend's office who um, runs the Believer Fest, which is a literary um, a literary magazine and festival that takes place in Las Vegas. And she literally just pulled the book off the shelf and was like, you should read this. And I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, I literally had just mm-hmm. noted it a couple hours earlier to, to read. So it was lovely how that all worked out. But yeah, yeah. I, I highly recommend it. It's intense, but it's also lovely. Um you know, add it to your to read list. I, I, you won't regret it. I mean, you might, but then you're a terrible person. So whatever. <laughs> <laughs> um, this week, I'm really excited because we have a guest freak out. This actually came in before isolation. It's been sitting in in our queue for a little while. Um, and so I'm glad we have the opportunity to share this freak out from Chris. Kind Words is definitely a, a neat little game. It's a game uh, on Steam where you it's a really cozy game and you kind of you just your character just kind of sits in this in this cute little bedroom and there's like chill music playing and you can write uh notes to other players um and but you can also so so some players write notes just sort of maybe asking for some encouragement or help or whatever um and then other players you can also send um you know encouragement to other folks so it's just this it's a very very sweet um cozy um little you know warm warm-hearted little game i think warm-hearted little game is just what we need right now yeah yeah all right y'all you can submit your own freak out at feministfrequency.com slash freak out that's f-r-e-q-o-u-t Thank you so much for listening to Feminist Frequency Radio. Stay tuned for the freaking after party only available to backers of this podcast. Maybe I will share the documentaries that I've been watching. Maybe that's what we'll do in the bonus. Yeah. If you would like that, you can learn more at patreon.com slash femfreak. That's F-E-M-F-R-E-Q. You can find us everywhere and most places. I'd say most of the places that podcasts are found. (laughs) If you haven't yet, go to iTunes and subscribe, rate, and review us. And you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and all the social medias at FemFreak. The show is engineered by Rob Perra. Carrie Stimson provides technical support, artwork by Jamie Varon, and our intro music is by Phil Circus. Join us next time for another feminist dive into pop culture. Bye. Later. Bye. Bye.